Welcome to RaiderCast. In this episode, I'm joined by Tomb Raider movie superfan Jonathan, who's going to take us on a dive into some myths behind one of Lara's big screen adventures. Jonathan, welcome to RaiderCast. Thank you so, so much for having me. This is really, really a highlight. I am really looking forward to talking about some films with you. Definitely. It's time. It's time to discuss these underappreciated gems. Before we get into some of the films, I always like to know a little bit more about the people I'm talking to and their backgrounds with Tomb Raider. So would you like to tell us a little bit about your Tomb Raider journey through the years? Tomb Raider really started for me. I'm lucky enough to remember the actual day. It was June the 3rd, 1999. It was my sixth birthday and I bought the, the original big grey PlayStation 1 and with it came Tomb Raider 3. And from that moment on, I was just obsessed with that game. Any other games that were bought for me or my parents got, I just wasn't interested. It was just purely Tomb Raider 3. Anything about it, it was, it was all that I would, I would talk about to anyone. Anyone that would listen, I would be, Lara Croft, do you know Lara Croft? Tomb Raider? Um, I have this, this clear memory of being on my school bus and talking about it. And um, a boy on my school bus said, you know... If you if you go to her house and you keep jumping over the banister down into the hall in her house, just keep doing it until her health goes down and she'll die and you'll get to actually see her funeral. And I I was I just remember thinking, What? So there I was for days, <laughs> days trying to just throw in Lara off the railing in Croft Manor in the hall, waiting for something to happen, nothing to happen. And then I remembered this years later and actually came to wonder if this guy was a psychic because you actually did get to see Lara's funeral a little bit at the start of Chronicles at Croft Manor. So I was always like, did he have this game back then? Obviously he didn't because it was 1998, <laughs> but that memory is something that just stays stays with me to this day. But um I was just obsessed and I think it was Jenny Millward that said or has said a few times that if you were around in the late 90s, Lara was everywhere, even for me, the age I was at, I remember her being everywhere. Um, the Lucasade bottle was a big thing for me, that back back then when they were glass, the Lucasade bottles, I remember collecting Wow, I remember that. <laughs> so long ago. I just remember collecting any bottle and asking my parents can we buy Lucasig purely just for that Lara Croft advertisement on the front and then I remember it would have been 2000 when it was announced that Angelina Jolie would be playing Lara Croft in the film and then constantly again asking my parents is there any news like obviously I didn't have internet back then and I just wanted to know what was going on with this film that it was actually happening you know, at that time, yeah, Lara was a character, but she was, I guess, like a plethora of polygons. And to finally kind of see that in human form, like I've seen that trailer for the first time, like, like she was here, she was human. The sad thing about that was here in the UK, the film was rated 12 and I was nine. So no. I never got to go to the cinema to see it. I had to wait all the way until... It came out in video and rent it from Blockbuster. But I did have every piece of merchandise from it. The, the figures, the mugs, the lunchbox, just absolutely anything I could 
and then I remember the book as well. The novelization. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. It was just even back then, just there was just so much dedication put into the launch of movies with stuff like that, with the memorabilia and the novelizations. You, you don't really get that anymore. So to have that for Tomb Raider, one of my most favourite things in the world, is just so so good. And um, and then in that gap, I think all us older Tomb Raider fans will remember this gap, 2001 to 2003 where we're waiting on the Angel of Darkness coming out and we knew the Cradle of Life was coming. Each to their own how that turned out for you. For me, <laughs> I loved them both. So Same. Well, I won, you won. We both won on that one for a lot yes. of people. <laughs> and especially the critics, you know, they had their they had their daggers poised for both that game and the film. Um, but I still love both of them. Both of them are great and both of them, funnily enough, are underappreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Angel of Darkness, more with times going on, it's becoming, it always has had this cult following, but I think it's really in the last few years, like, just got this massive, massive audience behind it. Um, it's pretty heartwarming to see. It really is. Definitely, definitely. Then, two family holidays we went on, 2005 and six. I finally got to go to Egypt and obviously from playing Tomb Raider and The Last Revelation. Amazing. My parents telling me we were lucky and fortunate enough to, to go to Egypt was just the best thing ever. So I saved my pocket money up and I got loads of trinkets and replicas of just anything I could. Um, and then years passed and I decided to go down the road of textile design at college. And these trinkets and everything that I bought came to use when I learned how to create textile drawings. So, you know, we had to bring our own objects in for still life drawings. And we would draw these objects in weird positions, learn different methods of drawing. And they were really weird. Like some of them was like looking at your still life, closing your eyes and then drawing what you remembered. Or drawing with your non-dominant hand. And just all of these things created, um, they created different markings and different interesting things to turn into textiles and all of this stuff, all of my whole first collection was based on KV5, Valley of the Kings and The Last Revelation, just my entire first year, just everything. And then by the time my final year came, um, that collection was completely loosely based on the Cradle of Life and more so the opening section with the Luna Temple and Alexander the Great and I had evolved my textiles into a full menswear collection you know they weren't just samples of fabric anymore I was making jackets and shirts out of them uh, I was really diving personal for this one and I had read over time doing research that Alexander the Great according to legend was gay or at least he had a homosexual relationship to some degree with his lifelong companion Hephaestion so to me a 20 year old gay guy just getting to know myself and being comfortable with myself this was such a strange but exciting topic you know homosexuality in ancient times what was that like why was it accepted or at least common practice and how did we get ourselves as a species into the way we did in the 20th century versus back then so along with my physical work of garments i had to do a dissertation which really went into that and that's a hundred percent stemmed from my fascination with the Cradle of Life, the Luna Temple, and Alexander the Great, and it just all came from that movie. 
everything came from that movie so yeah that's the Tomb Raider journey <laughs> there was a lot in it a lot of unexpected things as well this is really cool I love how much just even the cradle of life itself has meant to you and yeah. how much it's influenced you through the years that's just phenomenal like doing this podcast I often talk to people who maybe the earlier games or like the reboot series of games have meant so much to them and they've helped them through the tough times of their life mm -hmm. But to hear like a similar type of story based on the Cradle of Life in particular is just fantastic because it's it's drawing on it's every aspect of the series now. Like from the games, from the later games, from the films as well. Mm -hmm. It's like she's influenced people's lives in so many ways in from all the different media. Yeah. It's wonderful. Really wonderful. Oh, it's it's so good and we're so lucky to have that you know there's so many people that are fans of games or cult games back then or even now that have never had movies like we as Tomb Raider fans maybe even take a little bit for granted we had classic Lara we had movie Lara we had the comics Lara back then like we've just got so much and it's just how, however you see her whatever one's your favorite there's a lot to choose from there's really a lot to choose from brilliantly put fantastic shall we dive into the cradle of life we shall go this time the time has come where would you like to start with this i feel that within the community and the legacy of classic tomb raider the movies are really underappreciated if we actually look at what the movies did for the game series, it's not only forgotten, but it's rarely acknowledged. The most obvious one, I think, would be the design of Croft Manor in the movies. Yes. The design, yeah, like, the design of the main hall and the tech room in Legend, Anniversary and Underworld comes directly from the first movie. Like, it was... It was the big influence of it, wasn't it? Like, almost identical. Um, and the design of the exterior of the manor is a direct reference to the Cradle of Life, Hatfield Hall. You can see this scene when the camera pans down on the door, on the scene where Lara's training with the bamboo with Hillary. It's a near mirror image. I love that scene. Oh, so good. It's That's a near mirror image from the outside of Underworld. Where the manor explodes. Ah. If you actually look at the outside of that scene in Cradle of Life Hatfield House and then look at that scene in Underworld, it's almost like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. But also, Lara's team in the movies, Hillary and Bryce, definitely <laughs> influenced the inclusion of Zip and everyone's favourite, Alistair. Although Zip had appeared in Chronicles and we don't really know where Alistair came from. <laughs> it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely taken. It was definitely taken or took inspiration from the movies that she had this, this team all of a sudden behind her. Also, I think the first film, I may be wrong, I think you could correct me on this one, but I think the first film is the first mention to Lara's parents. E yes ish kind of, yeah like i think in that um chronicles intro 
the the two people mm. at her funeral are supposed to be her parents, but it's never specifically said yeah. in in words these yeah. are her parents. So, yeah, the first actual vocal mention of her parents or her family even is in the first film. You're right. Yeah, like, <laughs> and it's a touchy subject for everyone, the parent thing. But you know, if you were, if you want somewhere or someone or something to blame for where this all started, this continuing cycle of this particular storyline, you know, from the Legend Anniversary Underworld games, the Survivor games, and even the 2018 movie, this was this is where it all started. This yeah. was the culprit. Yep. <laughs> Blame goes all the way back to 2001. I think one of the most interesting things doing research throughout, throughout all of these years for both of the films was that the working title for the first Tomb Raider film, according to the Angel of Darkness official companion guide, the working title for the first Tomb Raider film was actually Tomb Raider, the Achilles Shield. Interesting, okay. I found this super interesting, but strange as the first film didn't have anything to do with this at all. Yeah. At all, though, through some research again, it seems that this may have came from a rejected draft of the script in 1998 from a writer, Stephen E. D'Souza. Interestingly enough, just before The Cradle of Life was released, Souza was given a writing credit at the last minute. So this made me wonder if his rejected 1998 script was actually the bones of what The Cradle of Life would later become. Ooh, now that's interesting. Just really because the Achilles shield and obviously at the start of the cradle of life we have Greece and ancient Greece, I was like... Yeah. It's a little coincidental. It's a little coincidental, but super cool to think about. But I think, you know, after the success of the first film, it was almost certain that a second Tomb Raider film would see the light of day. According to the writers, again, the pre-production actually began the night of the first film's premiere, with the story being outlined, and there was so many different ideas thrown around for the sequel. There was one, which I, I would have loved to have seen, um, that was going to show Lara recovering from Chen Lo's ambush in the Luna Temple in her holiday home in the Seychelles. Wow. But... Yes. But this was cut due to production costs and was actually rewritten for Croft Manor to make it more familiar to fans and tie in with the first movie. But I read that. I do wonder. I do wonder if the uh, the developers of the the film would like. Right, where can we get the uh, the film studios to send us? What exotic location? I know Seychelles. No, you have to do it in England. Get back to England. Definitely. Um. But no, overall, I feel like The Cradle of Life was more a Tomb Raider movie than the first one. The The first one really laid the ground. We've got Lara in there, we've got the jewel pistols, the braids, she had Croft Manor. Everything was off the ground to go. The Cradle of Life, you know, had more vehicles. In that one movie, we had a jet ski, motorbike, jeep, more locations, more outfits. It had tombs, temples, as well as urban areas like city centre Shanghai. And then Mm -hmm. also, that last section in Africa, in the darkness, that added a major horror aspect to that movie. Oh, big time. Like, re-watching that recently, I was like, I do not remember this being as intense. Like, that horror movie feel. Yeah. 
when the creatures are picking people off. Yeah. Really. It, it reminded me, I think the first time I watched it, it reminded me of the scene in um, The Lost World where people are walking through the cornfields yeah. and the velociraptors are just jumping, uh-huh. and, like picking people off one by one. And it's like, no one has any idea what's out there, what's getting them. But it's like really creepy. It's fantastic. Uh, no, 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 that you say that, I'm seeing that. It's just, oh no, it was great. It was great. And again, just added, we'd had kind of horror a bit in the games, but that was like a scene from a horror film in that. But again, it just showed how many how many levels that that film had. Uh, there's definitely a lot more than the obvious was taken from the core design games and meets the eye for the second film. So in the second game, we get to see Lara in her wetsuit for the first time. We get to see Lara in a wetsuit in the second film. Though they're different, it was, I don't know if you would, if you would call that a tradition because it only happened once, but it was a nice nod that come to life again in the second film the way it did in the second game. Um, we also had Lara visiting China for a portion of the film. Obviously this happens in Tomb Raider 2 in the opening levels and then 3 towards the end. Nice similarities, definitely. Yeah, and I know that the, the Great Wall scene when she's on the motorbike. That was actually filmed not too far away from you. That's correct, yeah. Um, I remember back in probably late 2001 or early 2002, uh, my sister said to me, come on, let's go and find where they're filming. They're not, it's like hillside. They're not going to be able to hide where their trucks are. <laughs> and we found where it was. And you know the little village where she crash lands into the yeah. lake? Uh, those mountains are CGI, but the village on the lakeside is all real. Wow. Um, they were made, they were like half buildings, so they were like shells. They were like the facades, the fronts of the buildings. Um, and they were like propped up by like wooden scaffolding at the back. But obviously uh, they planned to move the camera yeah. around. And I saw her motorbike and all of the production vehicles, but I didn't see... Angelina and I didn't see any of the filming crew. I just saw a, like a few maintenance people like sweeping up, and me and my sister were like crawling through the bushes along the side of the lake, trying to get as close <laughs> as possible. It's fantastic and amazing. It's like whenever I see that film now, and people are like, "Oh yeah, blah blah blah, China." I'm like, "Nope, it's Wales. I was there. I was there. I saw it being made." <laughs> no, I'm definitely jealous of that. Definitely jealous of that. That even even really to cool. remember it now and just kind of, even if you didn't see how you were there, you were you were part of it to an extent. Another similarity, Tomb Raider won the game and Croft Manor were only inside. Tomb Raider won the movie, were 99% inside Croft Manor. It was really Tomb Raider 2 in the game where the actual Croft Manor level starts outside. We get to see outside Croft Manor in the obstacle course for the first time. In Tomb Raider 2 we get to see Lara in the grounds of Croft Manor when she's horseback riding. So again, it was another nod to, it's not just- Yeah, that's a little parallel, yeah. it's amazing. The FMV that starts 40 fathoms, it's Lara in the water and there's a shark that goes round her. Yep. This scene is almost mirrored when Lara is swimming up from the collapsing Luna Temple and when she baits the shark, just the way she looks at the shark and the shark comes round I was like, oh, I never noticed that before. It undeniably is a nod. 
It's absolutely, yeah. I think another one is the idea of an air pocket. So, like, the the wreck of the Maria, the way I see that game, it was kind of like an air pocket. You know, like, when you're on the deck, it seemed to be underwater, but you were inside an air pocket. This was the same with the Luna Temple. It had kind of submerged in this air pocket, so it just kind of brought this comparison, or, or more so introduction, of going right down, like, into water, but finding this, like, untouched or, like, wreck almost of something intact it was just like just insane just so so cool to see i think yeah i think they must have sort of planned that sort of similarity with like the second film and the second game there are just i think there's too many for it to be coincidence definitely i think for the first time in both of these lara teams up with someone in the film it's terry sheridan and in the game it's curtis trent so she has this male companion. Again, everyone's got their own opinions on that. But <laughs> again, funny how both of these happened at the same time. Yeah, I think there was a lot of tie-ins, maybe even just to, in terms of fan service and to connect what was on screen in the cinema to what people were playing at home. Yeah. I think there was definitely sort of just to ease the transition between the two and for people to feel more comfortable who knew the series to not feel completely alienated. Like they were seeing similar things and thinking, yeah, this is this is Tomb Raider. This is what I've been playing all these years. Definitely, definitely. And so many parts of the Cradle of Life really did that, or did that for me at least. So shall we talk a little bit about the Lunar Temple? We should. We shall. Let's do it. I think it is my favourite part of all three Tomb Raider films is the Lunar Temple section. Wow. And there is one very specific reason, and that is because of Angelina Jolie's portrayal of Lara within the Lunar Temple itself is so utterly spot on and it absolutely epitomises Lara Croft for me. And it's just that one moment where she sees the shiny treasure and she's asked, what's that? And without dropping a beat she smiles and says it's mine it's like yes i couldn't agree more like i just shivers i loved it yeah no you're a hundred percent right i totally agree it was just classic lara it was that just that oh i can't even describe it just that attitude yeah she had angelina just completely in that scene just owned it yes so what was the luna temple um according to lara it was a temple built by Alexander the Great. Alexander collected treasures from all over the world. He stored them in two places. The majority went to his library in Egypt, but his most prized possessions went here, the Luna Temple. And by law, no one was allowed to record its location. And in 2300 BC, it was swallowed by the sea, destroyed during a volcanic eruption. So, in the Alexander archives, it does state that Alexander kept the treasure he prized the most in a temple, which no one was allowed to see. And before he died, he told its location to three people. But in his diary, it didn't show the names of any of these people. Soon after he died, it was said that a companion made a map of the temple's location. However, over time, the temple was lost by rising sea levels. Eventually, the ground corroded and the temple fell to the ocean floor. Literally, in the movie, we get to see Lara venture to the ocean floor. I think from there, we, we, we wonder, or at least when I watched this, I wondered, is this real? 
like, did this happen? So the simplest answer is, it isn't so simple. <laughs> the, the Luna Temple did exist. It's not a myth, nor was it made up for the film. It was a real temple built by King Cerebus Tullus, excuse my pronunciation if need be, that was dedicated to Luna the Moon Goddess. And the first confirmed reference to a temple to Luna dates back to 182 BC. And the temple geographically was in Rome, Italy, and was destroyed in the Great Fire of Rome in 64 AD and was never rebuilt. So the key information there being the fact that it was in Rome, which is about 1,600 miles away from Santorini, where Lara discovers yep. it. <laughs> the other part there was Luna was a Roman moon goddess, so Alexander wouldn't have erected a temple to her. It just wouldn't have made sense. If he had done, it would have most likely been done to the Greek equivalent, who was Selene. Hmm, that's interesting, okay. Also, Lara states that the temple sank in 330 BC, but Alexander didn't get to the Indus River, where the box, which we'll get to later, was supposedly found until 326 BC. So there's a little chronological disconnect there. Given the fact this happened thousands of years ago, we could maybe excuse them for it. Yeah, I, I, I think it's okay. <laughs> yeah. um, also, the box is said to have been responsible for a plague among Alexander's army, but the ancient author Arians, the companions of Alexander, as well as many other historical texts, don't make any mention to a plague there, the box, hmm. or of course, the Luna Temple. So, from historical entries in today's archaeology, we don't think there was any record of an earthquake or volcanic eruption as stated by Lara. Okay, so cinematic license for that bit then. Most definitely. Like, whilst there was a Luna Temple that was destroyed, it's probably not the same Luna Temple that Lara discovered off the coast of Santorini. From all the information we have, it's almost certain that the story's creators and the screenwriters did do a lot of research, and they really did the most intricate details on reality and this is something that's been prominent in Tomb Raider since the beginning, you know, Atlantis Horus, Set, Excalibur Valhalla, all of these characters and events do have some kind of truth to them, or at least mythological truth. There's a really cool thing that I noticed as well, I recently rewatched Cradle of Life and so, the main treasure that Lara finds in the Lunar Temple is the orb one of the other treasures found within the Lunar Temple is you see at the very end of the the structure the the statue of I assume Alexander the Great seated, mm -hmm. and what I quite like as well is just the symbolism that this orb and and the box was like his greatest discovery, his greatest treasure, because he's hidden the the map mm -hmm. in there, which is super important, but. The key to reading the map, the key to this knowledge, is placed over his heart. Wow. Wow. It's on his chest. Like, the key to this knowledge, the key to his most important treasure is lodged in his chest. And it's this disc. And I just love that the symbolism of that being, like, the most important thing to him. Definitely. A great little detail. I never, I never noticed that, but it makes so much, so much sense, especially this is the place where where these artifacts that he found would come. I mean, it definitely has to be the case. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really nice. I definitely think 
Pandora's Box. It's one of the more common myths. Actually, out of all the myths throughout the entire franchise, I think this is one of the more common like mythology myths that everybody knows. Um, as Lara states in the film, the Sunday School version, Pandora's given a box. <laughs> Pandora's given a box by Zeus, told not to open it. She defies his command, unlocks it, and unleashes pain and sorrow into the world. The writers of the film actually said that they ho- they had already outlined something about biological weapons, which by coincidence mirrored with the Pandora story, and then suddenly the idea of Alexander hiding the map and the orb and the Luna Temple all started to piece together. So then Lara elaborates. In 2300 BC, an Egyptian pharaoh found a place he named the Cradle of Life, where we, life began. And there he found a box, the box which brought life to earth. The pharaoh opened the box, but all that was left inside was the romanti, or anti-life, the plague which came as the companion to life. It levelled the pharaoh's army, and the pharaoh's son dispatched his finest soldier to take the box to be transported to the end of the world. 2,000 years later, Alexander the Great reached India, where his army was ravaged by a plague after one of his men found a box. Alexander felt that the box was too powerful to be trusted by any man, so he returned it to its home in the cradle of life, and it has never been seen since. Can I just say, top marks for almost perfectly mirroring Angelina Jolie's inflections when you were telling that story. Can you imagine how many times I've watched that film in like 18 (laughs) years? I think the crux of the story of Pandora's box is something called curiosity. Now, if Tomb Raider wasn't called Tomb Raider, it should have just flat out been called Curiosity. Because... Oh, absolutely, that's great. That's really what lies behind it all. Curiosity of the unknown, or what has been Lara's curiosity across the franchise. And it's been a staple plot thread for the good, like her finding her backpack off of the skeleton in Cambodia, or to the bad, like unleashing set in the last revelation, and then more so starting the apocalypse in shadow. Like according to the actual legend, Pandora was the first mortal woman who get this, whose blazing curiosities set a chain of earth-shattering events in motion. Sounds familiar. It's, it's extremely <laughs> familiar. It it's it's almost again we're at that point. It's just too familiar. But it's great. It fits so well. That fits her perfectly. So well. Um, The actual representation of the box in the movie, I thought was really well done. And I couldn't help but notice the sound the box made in the film. Like, I can hear it right now. It was almost like a a high-pitched twinkling. And that sound actually relates directly back to part of the myth. It said that sometimes Pandora was convinced she'd heard voices whispering from the box as if straining to be free and I just appreciated that just a little bit more just knowing that part of the myth was the sounds coming out of the box and it made Pandora want to open it and if you remember at the end of the film when Lara has the box floating in that kind of oil she does shift the lid <laughs> just like tempted just, yeah. that, just that bit again just mirroring the myth. I do like as well how um, that the concept of sound also ties into well, not just to the box itself, but to the orb and the key and and discovering 
how to find the locations and it was through sound waves as well which mm. i thought was just such a cool concept definitely definitely but today pandora's box suggests extreme consequences of messing with the unknown but also human curiosity do we have to investigate everything we don't know or are there some mysteries that are better left unsolved now to finish at the start of the film Lara states on the boat in Santorini very positively that everything lost is meant to be found. However, by the end of the movie, when she has seen the power of the box, the lives it has taken alongside what the box was going to be used for, she's changed her mind and in the final scenes she repeats, not everything lost is meant to be found. So I think that's an absolutely fantastic note to end this exploration of the cradle of life on thank you so much for being my special guest today would you like to tell people where they can find you online yeah just on twitter i've recently just kind of joined the tomb reader um community after literally i mean 18 years in the shadows i've been watching but i'm over on twitter (laughs) at at tomb jonathan wonderful Thank you again. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Don't forget to follow along for more news at Raidercast Pod, and see you next time.